this last week I ordered um, an African American um, hymnal um, that put together all the hymns that were written by slaves as they sat in the fields in the southern part of the United States and as they suffered the tortures of their masters uh, they wrote these hymns that are amazing hymns they're all scriptural based go down Moses Joshua fit the battle of Jericho all of them looking forward to their future hope because they had no hope in this world do you get that they had no hope in this world For all they knew, they would die the slaves they were. For all they knew, knew, their children might be taken from them at any time. And yet they sang those songs. When they would gather together sometimes in fields where nobody could find them so that they could worship, they would do that. And sometimes when they got caught, they would get beaten for worshiping the Lord God. And who was it that gave them the Bible in the first place? It was... It was their slaveholders that introduced them to the scriptures. Now, not all slaveholders were that way, let's admit that. But it was bad. It was really bad. And here sit I, and here sit you. I have never so much as suffered one little bit for the sake of the gospel. I have never so much as suffered one little bit in order to get together to, to read the Word of God and to hear the Word preached. I have never so much as suffered one little bit for talking to someone about Christ. Oh yeah, people would give me a bad time, but I never suffered physically. Nobody ever took anything from me. Nobody ever did anything to hurt me. And yet, how many times a week do I want to give up? How many times a day do I want to quit? How many times a day do I say, Oh, I hate the lot in life that I have. I wish I had something else. Hold on to what you have because one day you may lose it. And then you have to ask yourself, What are you going to give? How much will you, what cost will you pay? Will you take up the cross and follow Christ? Or will you give in? The writer, the the people who received this letter of the Hebrews endured a lot. You read that in verse 32 of the chapter we read. After you were enlightened, some people believe that means baptized. Whether that's true or not, there's a lot of discussion. But you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You know, in the early church, what would the people would do is they'd go stand and watch as other Christians were being taken off to prison and they would walk with them to show their solidarity with them. When they were in prison, they would take them food. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they suffered all those things. Why? Well, because they knew that they had something better. 
But it wasn't here and it wasn't now. It wasn't in this life. This world will not be a utopia. The government cannot make this a great place. You are never going to extricate racism from the hearts of people. You are never going to excise sin from their hearts because only the Spirit of God can do that. So what are you going to do? That's the question. Are you going to stay the course? And that's the issue that I believe the book of Hebrews was written to address. People who are discouraged, people who did not know what they were going to do with the faith that they once proclaimed. And so in chapter 2, we read these words. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he's speaking there about the law of Moses, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. That word, to drift away. It means to drift from alongside of something. Some some people understand it to mean to um, to be washed away. Uh, the idea is, idea is uh, of gradually giving up one's faith. What happens when you... Have you ever been by a stream and watched something get washed in the tin of the current? That's the picture. If you've ever been to San Francisco Bay, you can see the currents running through the water. And they're dangerous. And in fact, uh, people didn't escape from Alcatraz for a long, long time. I know one person who did, or know of one person who did. But the reason they wouldn't, because if they got caught in those currents, they could be taken out to sea and die. What happens when you get caught in a riptide on the beach? You get carried away by the water. And it takes you out and it lets you off wherever it wants. A friend of mine who was diving, he got caught in a riptide. It pulled him a mile out from the shore before it let him loose. That's what it means to get to drift away. What it means to get caught up. It means that you're being taken away. Yes. And so the writer warns them, you know, are you going to let that happen to you? Are you going to drift away from what you have heard? Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is a faithful is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. See, that's a condition. You have to hold fast. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now I want you to notice this. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Fall away. That's what these people were facing. Chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience of the former Jews, former Hebrews. Chapter 6, 
verse 4. This is scary. This is frightening. Chapter 6, chapter 6 verses 1 through 10, and chapter 10 verses um, that we read, those verses 19 to, uh, to um, 30-31, those are the most frightening warning passages of Scripture. Listen to them. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, that's baptisms, that's what the word is, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For, this is frightening, it is impossible, it is impossible, not it's not likely, this is not hypothetical, which, which some people believe. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Enlightened, some people think, means baptism. I don't agree with that. I think it has to do with the whole work of God that you see in the church. Who have tasted, or what, in fact, it, it seems to me that what, what follows uh, interprets that for us. Who have tasted uh, uh, the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Wow, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. How did they do that? And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Wow. And then he goes on to talk about land as an illustration. For land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now, just correlate that with passage from Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 8. They're all parallel passages about the, about the sower of the seeds. Some of the seeds were cast, you know, and they fell on the rocky ground. Some of the key seeds were cast and they fell into thorny bushes. Some of the seeds were cast and they fell onto uh, the good soil. Well, what happens? The only ones that produce fruit are the ones that are on the good soil. And so the writer seems here to be saying that these people who, who are doing this, falling away, leaving, they seem to be these people who are worthless soil. Are they like that? That's a frightening thing. Chapter 8, verse 1. The point there is that we're talking about uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's brought us the new covenant. That's the point. We have this great high priest who intercedes for us. How can we let go? Is that possible? Well, let's think about this as we look at chapter 10. But I wanted you to see how often the idea of persevering in the faith comes up. Now, we all believe in the perseverance of the saints. That's our confessional statement. 
And we all believe that God will not allow His people, who are truly His, to fall from grace. Impossible. But that's not what Hebrews 10 is talking about. And this was what was frustrating to me. I've wrestled over this passage. I've listened to other people preach it. People that I really admire as being people who can handle the text of Scripture. And not one of them allow the passage the force that it has. It's a warning passage. It's telling all of us. It's warning us. But over and over again, all I heard was that this won't happen to the God's elect, that you know, we, this, you know, God preserves His elect and all of that. And, and they bypass the force of the text which is there to warn us, to say, wake up! You are going to face days to come, dear ones, that are not going to be easy. Wake up! Wake up because the times are coming. They're at the door where they're going to start telling you what you can and you can't do. They're going to start telling our children what they can and can't do. They're going to take authority from parents. They're going to do this. The works are already there. These seeds have been planted for the last hundred or so years. People, I'm warning you. Hebrews is warning you. Take care. Wake up. Don't let the force of this passage roll over your head because we have a confessional position that says the Lord will preserve His people. Yes, He will. I have no doubt about that. But here's the point. First of all, I want you to notice the reasons that the writer of Hebrews gives that we should have the full assurance of faith First of all, he says, we have confidence because of Christ. Verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new of living and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, he's repeating imagery that he's repeated before in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle. You remember the earthly tabernacle had a veil. And the high priest entered that veil once a year and he would sprinkle the blood of, uh, of the offering on the mercy seat. Okay. Well, the writer is saying that veil that was up in the temple has been torn from top to bottom. And Jesus has entered the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly holy of holies. How did he do that? Through his flesh. Okay, so his flesh is the veil, I guess. That's what the writer seems to say. And and whose blood has he sprinkled in there? Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood. And so he, therefore, has, has opened heaven for us. And we come to... through God, through a new and living way. And Christ has opened that for us. Secondly, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have a faithful high priest. Therefore, we can hold fast to our confession. 
right? That's what verse 23 says. Let us hold fast to our confession of the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he is faithful. Secondly, we have this faithful high priest. Secondly, let us consider, these are exhortations, let us consider how how to stir up hope or how to stir up one another. And what are we to stir one another up? To love and to good works. Now notice, it says not neglecting to meet together. Now, you can interpret that in a variety of ways. Um, I believe it should be this way. There are other interpretations, so I'm not going to be dogmatic. But this is what I believe. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging, by encouraging one another, and all the more because we see the day drawing near. So there's two things there. First, don't neglect to meet with one another. That is one of the ways, that is the manner in which we stir up stir one another up to love and good works. Yeah. How could we do it if we weren't together? That's right. We have to be together. Yes. You have to encourage me. Yeah. You have to challenge me to love and good works because I need as much as anybody else to love other people and to, and to bear good fruit and good works towards them. Yes. I do. Your example is important to me. And I, I don't know about my example. I'm in my house all the time. But, um, but hopefully I have an example that you can follow. See, the point, the point is we encourage one another, but we can't do it if we're not together. That's why it's so important for the people of God to be together. Yes, we need to be together to worship the Lord. That's true. And we worship the Lord together. But that's not all that we do together. Because what we do when we're together is to stimulate one another to love and good works. You know, how often have you been sitting here, and I won't mention any names, but how long have you been sitting here sometimes and you just start crying? Because something has happened in your life. And someone comes up alongside of you, puts their arm around you, and that's happened to more than one here. They put their arm around you, and what do they do? They comfort you. They try to help you to understand, you know, to encourage you. They try to help you sometimes understand, well, how can I love this person who's been so mean to me? They, they put their arm around they encourage you. They, they try to help you. That's, what that, that's, what, that's at least one thing that it means. Does it mean more? Well, of course it does, but that's just one thing. That's one, that's one little detail of what I've seen gone on in this church more than one time with more than one person. But we were together. Phone calls are nice. No offense, they really are. I, I, don't, I don't get too many of those, but phone calls are nice. Text messages are nice too. Yeah, I text my son all the time. I try to text my daughters. But there's nothing like being in the same room with them. There's nothing like holding them in my arms. Nothing like that. You know, sometimes the son, one of my sons, he comes and he... And he just put his arms around me and he puts his head on my shoulder and he just weeps. You know? 
He can't do that in a text message. He can't do it on the phone. He can only do it when we're together. And it's the same for us, isn't it? It really is. So I believe that that idea is that we should, that we, that we consider how to stir one another up by not neglecting to meet. But also, there's a second thing there, to encourage one another. By encouraging one another, we stir one another up because we see the day drawing near. Now, uh, I think that there's a focus in this part of the verse that, that I'm trying to at least communicate to some that I've talked to already today, and I'm going to try to communicate that to you. Friends, this world is not our home. Amen. We are, we are exiles on a mission. Peter says that we are sojourners here. Okay? So I want to vote and do everything that I can in terms of my civic responsibility. I don't believe that I should give any of that up. You know, I, I sign petitions. You know, I, I write letters to the senators. I do all those things. So it's not that I'm going to say, oh, you know, this is just a sinking ship. Why polish the brass? That's what I was taught. That's, that's what I was taught in school, you know. That's what I was taught in school. Because the Lord's going to come, you know. He's coming soon. So, you know, don't bother shining the brass. The ship is sinking. So... I don't believe in that, okay? But I don't believe either that this world is my home. That I don't have hope that this is this is where my glory is going to be here and now in a re, in a in a reconstituted earth and heaven. Yes, in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, I believe all of that. The new the resurrection of the dead. That's my hope. But it's all not here right now. So I see the day coming, and so we all need to be encouraged. As we see that day drawing near. Now, it seems like it's been drawing near for a long time. But that's what hope is, right? You don't see it. You just hope for it. You keep looking for it. You live in light of it, you know? I've read one book so far called Exiles on Mission about evangelism. And it talks about, how, about suffering, you know? And, and this guy actually worked in a Muslim-dominated country. He wasn't there as a missionary. I don't know what kind of work he did, but it wasn't as a missionary. Um, but there was a Christian church there. He went to that church there. And they would, uh, you know, they would advertise for people to give away um, Bibles. And so every once in a while, somebody would call him and say, like a Bible. He would drive 200 miles to give somebody a Bible. Yeah. And he tells these stories about people, young people, young people, Tim's age, this one girl. She was the only Christian in her school. And one day the teacher is telling them about Christianity and he's misrepresenting it. And this teenage girl, 16 years old, she had the courage to stand up in the class and say, excuse me, sir, but you're not representing Christianity fairly. And she corrected him. Bad thing, you correct your teacher. Oh, yeah. But she did it anyway. And she was terrified when she did it. But she knew, you know, you're not representing the faith correctly. And this one young girl, because she did that, other kids came around and started asking her about her faith. Something, you know, in her country that's illegal. And that she was, Tim's age 16, when she did that. All by herself. 
Why does she do that? Because she has a hope. A hope that won't die. A hope that where she lives is not the end of it all. A hope for the future. She sees the day drawing near. And she spoke. God, I wish I were that strong. Then we notice a couple things that we call their inferential, their their because, their reasons that um, the writer follows up with. And he says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, that's hard to swallow. I'm not an Armenian, so I don't believe that can happen to Christians. What does he mean when he says, go on sinning deliberately? Well, the word deliberate, and it means the same in the Greek as it does in English, but deliberate is related to the idea of deliberation, right? Um, so, or deliberating. In other words, when you go on sinning deliberately, what you're doing is you're giving conscious thought and planning to do something that you know is wrong. Now, I'm going to say we're all, we all, when we sin, it's deliberate in a sense. But not in the sense that we have a hardened heart. You know, we may say, well, I know I'm sinning, but... Um, but we don't spend time thinking about that this is the right thing to do. I don't care what God says. That's a problem. Yes. And I think that he's moving in that direction. I think that it's difficult to explain, and so I can't explain it as thoroughly as I would like. But the idea is that you are deliberating about the sin. It's, it's something that you are doing consciously and with planning. And you're doing this after you receive the knowledge of the truth, which is what? The gospel. So you really, what it means is that you're slapping God in the face and saying your gospel doesn't mean anything. I'm going to do what I want to do and I don't care what you say. That's really the force of this thing. It's not, I mean, really think about it. If, if, if I'm supposed to forgive my offenders 70 times 7, well, what is God going to do? Right? This isn't talking about that kind of thing. This is a talking about this is talking about throwing it all away and just doing what I want to do, not giving any thought about the truth, saying, Oh yeah, I knew that. That was the truth. I don't believe it's the truth anymore. I'm gonna walk away from it. And so he's telling people who do that, yeah, you know what? There's only one thing left for you. A fearful expectation of judgment. And then he cites Moses. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What is he talking about? He's not talking about he's not talking about lying. He's talking about murder. He's talking about adultery. Remember, you couldn't give the death penalty in those things without two or three witnesses. Okay. By two or three witnesses, a thing is, a thing is established. Rape. That, that carries a death penalty. There are other sins that carry a death penalty. The writer is equating what's being done here, this sinning deliberately, 
with this idea of murder and other things that the law of Moses says you're going to die if you do this. But then we think, wait a minute, what about David? David committed murder. David was forgiven. I think what the writer is trying to do is to say, listen, it's not that those things are not ever forgiven. It's that what you are planning to do or what you are contemplating is actually worse than that because you are spurning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how he describes it. It's worse punishment because you've trampled underfoot the Son of God and you've profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and you have outraged the Spirit of grace. That's worse than what David did. That's worse than the adultery. What's happening here is not, it's not that the law of Moses doesn't say that, it's that this, this is worse because he says, how much worse punishment do you think you're going to get for what you are doing? What are you doing? Well, you are profaning the blood of the covenant. You are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Uh, you have outraged the Spirit of grace. How have we done that? They've done it by turning their back on the gospel and repudiating it. And you have to be warned, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so then he gives them this warning about falling into the hands of the living God, but then he goes on and gives them some encouragement. He says, um, and then he talks to them about what they've endured. They, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property and things like that. And then he makes this conclusive exhortation. You have need of endurance, endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Habakkuk chapter 2. Remember Habakkuk chapter 2? Habakkuk saying, oh God. <laughs> How can you use those Babylonians to discipline the people? They're worse than we are. How, how, how can that be? And God attacks him. But then that's when he says, my righteous one will live by faith. In other words, you have to trust me. And that's the bottom line. You have to trust the Lord. We have to trust, we have to trust those. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. So what is the writer warning us about? He's warning us about falling away from the faith. He's warning us about apostasy. He's not offering us a hypothetical situation. Now, there's always going to be a question in our minds, is there not? Can't someone who fall away ever be restored? And I can't answer the question. 
What I can say is that those I've seen who've fallen away never return. You see, the issue is not God. The issue is not that God won't forgive or can't forgive or anything like that. The issue is that you have a hardened heart and there is nothing that can do anything about a hardened heart. Your hardened heart allows you to spurn the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, to trample underfoot the Son of God, to outrage the Spirit of grace. That is a hardened heart. And that's what he's talking about. And why is he saying it to the church? Because there are some in the church who are this way. And if you don't believe it, you need to read articles that are being published now. The church is moving further and further away from the truth. Not this church, but the church in the United States. The church in the West. The church in the East and the church in persecu- under persecution in, in, the, in the Middle East. The church in Africa. Are they move- No, they're not the ones moving away. We're the ones moving away. I'll never forget reading an a article by uh, an African bishop and he he wrote to the church in England and he said, you brought us this Bible. You told us it was the Word of God and now you're walking away from it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they've done. Mm-hmm. They've walked away from it. And the church, the evangelical church, they're walking away from it too. Not all of them at once. And it's, it's just here and there that you begin to read about Pastors making this adjustment. Pastors making that adjustment. Why? Because we have to, we have to um, accept the culture. We have to work with the culture. Instead of saying, yeah, we do have to work with the culture, we've got to proclaim to them the kingdom of God and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. That's how we work with the culture. Not by becoming like them. Amen. And the writer of Hebrews is warning us, don't go down that road. Why? Because if you go down that road far enough, your heart will be hardened. So I agree with Philip Hughes, who wrote a, an article in a journal, a Westminster Journal, about what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. He's getting at this, that there are those in the church who are actually apostates. We don't know who they are all the time. No. I know I've met some that I thought were, but I can't. But what happens is that's what the church, when we discipline people, that's why we discipline them. We're saying about them that they are not part of the body of Christ. Do you know how horrible that is to have to pronounce that? And I've had to pronounce it more than once. So where's the encouragement in this passage? How are we encouraged here? This sounds really depressing. What am I supposed to do now? What are you supposed to do now? What about your struggles? Maybe you feel like you're an apostate. What are you supposed to do now? Here's the encouragement, the last verse. But we are not. We are not. I'm going to say it again. We are not. We are not. We are not. Of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. And then what happens? We step into chapter 11. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the writer goes on to talk about faith. When he gets to chapter 12, what is he going to tell us to do? Fix your eyes on Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith. So we can't just take chapter 10 by itself. If we stop there, then we've then then, then we're going to end up hopeless. But you don't we're not hopeless if we look at the chapters as they're all put together. Chapter 10 warns us, chapter 11 encourages us trust in the Lord. Abraham didn't see everything. Sarah didn't see everything. None of them saw everything at the end of chapter 11. All these people died. They were killed by the sword, thrown to lions, all of that. But guess what? They were waiting for they were waiting for the Christ. Chapter 12. You know, therefore, you know, lay aside everything, the sin that easily besets you. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's our hope, guys. Amen. And that's our only hope. And may God grant that we take the force of the warning passages of Hebrews to heart, not to cause us to despair, but to cause us to embrace the faith we once professed, to to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. You truly have given us all that we need for life and for godliness. Life is a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. And it's and it's it's disheartening to see people walk away. And we've seen them walk away before. We've seen people deny the faith. And it always breaks our hearts because we always thought something better. Lord our God, we pray that even those who may appear to have walked away and to have given up, it may not be that they've given up to the end. We don't know. But we pray that you would get their attention and turn their eyes off of chapter 10 and put their eyes on chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Hebrews and cause them to look to Christ. Father, we don't know where our church is going to be. We don't know what's going to happen in the days to come except things do not uh, bode well for Christianity in the United States of America. But they bode well for us. Help us therefore to always be strong and be sure to always stand and never be afraid because you are the author and finisher of our faith and you will bring us to that final day when all things will be made right and then we will understand more clearly than we do right now because we will stand in glory with you. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.